The scripture passage for this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin, from Beroth. For Beroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Berothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Let's pray. Our Father, the time has come for me to sing the praises of our risen King through the spoken word, through the word of God, through the sermon, by the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would add now power and grace to your word spoken. Father, I pray that you would grant clarity of mind. I pray that you would grant passion in the heart. I pray that you would guide our will to conform to your will. Father, I pray that you would visit us and be near to us. I pray that you would indeed feast with us on this word that you have put before us. And I pray that you would teach us to walk in the way that you would have us walk and to put our hope in the things that you would have us hope in and to put our trust in the things that you would have us trust in. Oh, Father, I pray that you would develop in us, like you did in David, faith, patience, and humility. Oh, how we need these things, Father, and we trust that you will come and do them in us and among us now. In the mighty, the matchless, the merciful, the high, the exalted name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. King Ishbosheth, the ruler of Israel and the son of King Saul, was held up in the northeastern town of Menachanim. That town was above the Sea of Galilee and to the east across the Jordan River. His father's cousin, a man named Abner, who was the commander of the army under Saul for some four decades, had just been executed in the southwestern city of Hebron where David was ruling over Judah. And when the news of Abner's death reached the ears of the king. The Bible says that he lost all courage. The Hebrew literally says that his hands went weak. What little courage he has was now gone. And he surely wondered what would become of him and what would become of his nation. In opposition to Ishbosheth, Abner had traveled to Hebron to make peace with David and to work out a deal by which David would become the king of Israel. Ishbosheth did not want this to happen. But all the leaders of Israel were actually with Abner, and there was among them this rising sense that David would rise and soon would be their king. But unfortunately, David's commander of the army, his nephew, a man named Joab, was filled with the spirit of revenge and of rage and of jealousy. And he thought that Abner was there to take his job. 
He thought that Abner was there to trick David, perhaps. He thought that Abner was a threat to his place in the kingdom, and he remembered the day, two and a half years ago, when Abner, in the heat of a battle, had taken the life of his little brother, and Joab wanted blood. And so Joab took Abner aside, and in his flesh, he took Abner's life. The the king had no knowledge of this, he had no collusion in it, and he certainly did not give his permission for it. The man who had stood by King Saul, Abner, the man who had sought along with him for so many years to find and capture and kill David, Abner, he was now dead. And his death deflated King Ishbosheth so much he didn't even know what to do. He was paralyzed in his heart. And the Bible says that beyond him, all of Ishbosheth's people also were dismayed to the point of terror. The ESV, I think, just says that Israel was dismayed, but the Hebrew word that's behind that word means to be dismayed to the point of terror. It means to be put inside of a panic. Israel had been in a minor battle with David and his people for two and a half years, and they knew that David was growing stronger and stronger, and they were growing weaker and weaker. They, know, they knew what David was capable of. They did not know that David had nothing to do with Abner's death, and now that he was dead, they wondered, would David mount up and come after their king? Would he execute their king? Would he capture all of their land? Would he treat them harshly in return for what he had been enduring for the previous 20 years? Would David essentially subject them to slavery and to cruelty? Beloved, there was among Israel a rising sense of panic. There was that kind of terror from the Lord that first gripped the people who lived in that land. When Israel entered into it, they knew that God was on David's side, which meant that God was in some sense and in some measure against them. While King Ishbosheth was held up and paralyzed way up in the northeast, there was a situation brewing down in the south that would shape the destiny of the nation. The sun had risen upon the land in the Benjamite town of Beeroth. And it was bustling with morning activity. The town was located about 15 to 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And if you were to have a sort of a camera descend upon the landscape, you would see that in particular there were two men and probably a small entourage with them preparing to set out on a military mission. From an outside observer's perspective, it probably would have appeared that they were mounting up to go and get revenge on King David and his men for what had just happened to Abner. But as they suited up and left town, they ended up traveling north toward Mahanaim rather than south toward Hebron. They headed up toward Ishbosheth rather than south toward King David. Meanwhile, you'll see in verse 4 that there was a uh, uh, another legitimate heir to the throne of Israel beside Ishbosheth, a person who perhaps presented a threat and at least presented an opposition to King David and to what God was doing in his life. This one was only five years old at the time, and he was, uh, he was only five years old at the time when the news of Saul's and Jonathan's death came to Israel. And now some seven and a half years had passed and he was 12 or 13 years old. He was still very young, 
but it was possible that he would rise to the throne if something were to happen to the reigning king. Some of you who know the Bible well may remember that there was later in the history of Israel a king named Jehoash who was only seven years old when he became the king of Judah. You remember that? How would you like to become the king of a nation at seven years old? Can you imagine the declarations that he would have declared? If I was that, in that position and we were in this culture, I would declare that dark chocolate bars are free for everybody in the land, something like that, something silly like that. A seven-year-old rises to the throne. He reigns for 40 years and he does what's right in the eyes of the Lord. So this kid's only 12 years old, but he does represent a, a threat to David's rise. When he was little, when he was five years old and the news of his father's death came and the news of his grandfather's death came, his nurse grabbed him and was trying to get out of town as fast as they could to flee for their lives and somehow she lost her grip and she dropped the child and probably his feet and his ankles and his part of his legs broke or something like that. But whatever the case may be, his legs did not heal properly and he ended up being crippled for the rest of his life. So it doesn't seem likely that he's going to rise to be the king, but you never know. He is a direct descendant of Saul. He is a son of David's beloved friend, Jonathan. We'll just have to wait and see what transpires between David and this young man named Mephibosheth, whose name probably means something like destruction of shame. That's something to think about. As for the king's warriors, Ba'ana and Rechab, those two people who were in Beroth and set out toward the north, toward King Ishbosheth, they arrived in the king's city around early afternoon. King Ishbosheth was taking his afternoon siesta, if you will, and so the men entered into his house and they went and grabbed some wheat. They were probably trying to pretend that they were going to make a meal and sit down with the king. And probably those attending the king thought that they were going to be discussing with them how they could exact revenge upon David for what had just happened to Abner. He pro they probably thought that those two men were there to rise up into Abner's place and to lead the nation of Israel forward. But as soon as that thought entered their minds, these brothers took a lightning quick and decisive action that unambiguously showed that they were not there to plot with the king, but that they had in fact plotted against the king. When the moment was just right, they took out their swords and they put the king of Israel to death. And the Bible tells us that they cut off his head, which to us seems so gruesome. But to them, it was the only way that they knew of proving that they had in fact killed the king and that the king was in fact dead. They had an agenda, and to them, this was the only way to further their agenda. Not to mention that they were rough men who lived in a very, very rough world. The colossal moment, this was a colossal moment in the history of Israel, beloved. In fact, I just don't even really know how to describe it to you. Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, was now dead. His father, Saul, was now dead. After decades and decades of ruling, all of his brothers were now dead. The vengeance of the Lord upon the house of Saul was almost complete, although we're going to have to still see what happens to, to Mephibosheth and to David's first wife named Michal. But whatever comes of those two, the seriousness and implications of this moment remind me of the moment in 1 Samuel when Eli and all of his sons died on a single day. Do you all remember that? Do you remember how powerful a moment that was in the history of Israel and just the, the gap that it left in the hearts of the people? 
and the sense of disorientation and wonder about who God was and where he was and what would become of all things. I think that moment kind of feeling was landing upon the people at this moment, but the only difference was that in in this case, there was a man waiting in the wings to rise up and to lead the people of God. Having completed their evil deed, these wicked warriors traveled all night long by way of the Jordan River Valley. They traveled right down the Jordan River, and probably in the late morning or early afternoon, they came to David's city of Hebron. Somehow, they gained access into the presence of the king, and once they were there, they presented to him his ostensible prize. They presented to him the, the head of King Ishbosheth, and along with his head, they said these words, if you look with me at verse 8. Hear, O king, is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord, Yahweh, has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Please notice, beloved, that like Saul and like many in Israel, these men knew well the story of the struggle between David and Saul. They knew well that Saul and Abner and Ishbosheth and all who were aligned with them were trying to capture David and kill David and do whatever they could to take him down over a period of 20 years. The whole plot of the tension between Saul and David, in other words, was not a secret thing. It was out there in the wide open. Everybody knew about it, including these two men, even though they had been party to all of it, probably for all of their military careers. And please notice with me that like Saul, they had learned how to misuse the name of the Lord to further their own purposes. Please notice that they had no hesitation to take the name of Yahweh on their lips and to lie in his name. Talk about taking the Lord's name in vain. In an effort to gain favor with the king, they actually tried to persuade David that they were tools in the hands of God to execute vengeance upon his enemies. That's a sick thing to do, beloved. To use the name of God to lie is a very sick thing to do. You know, when we talk about using the Lord's name in vain, we usually think about cussing and things like that, and it's certainly not good to take the Lord's name in a way that is inappropriate to the, to the dignity of his name. I would never argue anything other than that, but I do want to tell you that I think more important than that sort of um, just daily, more mundane thing the more serious way to misuse the name of the Lord, to take his name in vain, is to actually use it to lie. To use the name of Yahweh, to use the sacred name of Jesus Christ to justify a life that we know that is not pleasing to God. These men learned from their master, from Saul, from his whole entourage, how to use the name of the Lord in vain. David was a broken man. He was filled with sins and shortcomings, but he was a man of God. And he instantly, without needing to pray or think much, he saw through their deceit. And I believe that he looked at them with fire in his eyes. The Holy Spirit all filled up in him. And with passion in his voice, he said these words, beginning in verse 9, if you'll please look there with me. He now, too, uses the name Yahweh. As the Lord, as Yahweh lives, as the I Am is who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. He alone is my deliverer and not you. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought that he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. 
which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Now, if you'll pause to think about what David is saying there just a little bit, you may question like I did the assertion that the wicked have killed the righteous because what he is saying then is that these wicked men killed a righteous king. He's calling Ishbosheth a righteous person. And this I found confusing at first because Ishbosheth, his father Saul, Abner, everybody in their entourage was out to kill David. They were not people who sought the Lord or submitted to the Lord at all. They were not righteous people. David himself in the Psalms often wrote of these people using words like the wicked, like the unrighteous. He begged God to get vengeance on his enemies, and by that he meant in some Psalms these people. So what does it mean when he calls them righteous? Well, I think at the end of the day, all he's saying is that in this particular instance, the king, Ishbosheth, did nothing to deserve this punishment from these men. He committed no crime against these men that they had any right to execute justice upon him. And if he had committed such a crime, who were they to do that? He was the king of Israel. Do you see? He was in a place of honor. He was in a position that should be revered. You are not to walk into the presence of the king and kill him. David did not call Ishbosheth the Lord's anointed because he was not the Lord's anointed. Saul was. Ishbosheth was put up on the throne in the flesh, not in the spirit. And yet David knew that he was to be honored. And that in this particular case, he did not deserve this kind of treatment. And these men had no right to deliver that treatment to him. They were wicked in what they did, beloved. David saw straight through it. In an instant, he saw straight through it. And in an instant, he pronounced upon them a swift and righteous judgment that I believe was from the Lord. He pronounced upon them the sentence that they had just given to their king, namely death. And with that, David's men took their lives and they did something again that to us is gruesome, but that's important, and I'll explain it in a second. They cut off their hands, they cut off their feet, they hung them beside the pool of Hebron for all to see. In that culture and at that particular time, that was a very clear sign that these men were traitors. To us, we would look at that, we would think whatever we would think. Probably we would think gruesome and gross. But to people in that time, they would understand that the king was sending a message that he had not been complicit in what these men had just done. They were traitors. The king was sending a clear message that he did not need them or anybody else in his kingdom to go up into the north and execute justice for him. The king was sending a message that the people of Judah would not approach the people of Israel in their flesh, but they would trust the Lord and leave vengeance to the Lord. They would not be like the other peoples of the earth. They would not be fleshly people. They would look to the Lord and trust in the Lord and wait upon the Lord. And anybody who dared strike out against God's holy people in the north would pay a very high price. Beloved, David was sending a message. These people's death was not just about them. You have to understand, he is right on the edge of being the ruler over three million people. He has to think about a lot of things. And what impresses me most is that in an instant, he sees what he should do. 
And he executes justice in a way that sends a very clear message and makes the whole people march toward the purposes of God. To further his message, he took the king, the head of King Ishbosheth, and rather than just dispensing of it in some way, he had it buried in the royal cemetery, if you will, whatever that might have looked like, in the tomb of Abner. He put it in a place of honor. He put it in a place of respect. He put it in a place that called for humility from King David. You see, this was his enemy. It really was, in some ways, his enemy. And yet he refused to treat them like that. Why? Because he had put vengeance in the hands of the Lord, and now he was going to honor those to whom honor was due. In the days after Abner died, we have seen that Israel was basically crippled in their hearts. They were paralyzed with fear. We have seen that Mephibosheth was crippled in his legs. And now we see that David, on the other hand, was clear and courageous in the Lord. This story, to me, is the story of a broken king that's made strong by faith, and it's a story of a strong people who were made weak by their lack of faith in the Lord. This story is the story of the battle against faith and flesh, the battle against those who look to the Lord and those who use the name of the Lord but actually do not look to him and most likely do not know him. This is a story of a powerful man named Abner who in the crucial moment of his life after the death of his king and then in other crucial episodes in his life did not inquire of the Lord. If you read back over the stories we've covered in the last few weeks, you will notice something. There is a glaring absence of Abner ever talking to God. He did not inquire of the Lord, and therefore he acted in his flesh, and he paid an extremely high price for that. This is the story of a king, Ishbosheth, who also, in his time of terror, did whatever he did, but one thing he did not do was he did not inquire of the Lord. Did you notice that? He is the king over God's people, and he never bothers talking to God about his people. He does not inquire of the Lord. He's a man who sinks into fear because he fails to rise up in prayer. He's a man that's all overcome with his flesh because he is not stoking the fires of faith in his life. This story is the story of an entire people, the people of Israel, who knew how to use the name of God and observe the rites and rituals of God to some extent, but who did not, on the whole, seek after God day by day by day. And when the massive moment came, the people did not fast and pray and tear their clothes and ask the Lord what they should do. They just did what came natural to them. Beloved, when leaders and their people fail to seek the Lord day by day, Please hear, they will not seek the Lord in that big and tragic day. Very unlikely. When leaders and their people fail to seek the Lord moment by moment, they are almost completely unlikely to seek the Lord in the colossal moments of life. The pattern of life lived before the Lord becomes the way of life in those huge moments before the Lord. And you see, with all that's transpiring right now in the, in the history of Israel, we're seeing the clear distinction between flesh and faith because on the other hand, while these people were not seeking the Lord, this story is the story of another king, David, who despite his sins and shortcomings, which were very serious, I've been trying to show you how serious his sins and shortcomings were and we'll continue to march down that path next week, but despite those things, he was a man who sought the Lord. 
He was a man who cared about what God had to say. He was a man who listened to the words of God and sought with all of his heart to follow in the ways of God. Day by day, David sought his God, and then in the big day, he knew what to do before his God. Moment by moment, he sought the wisdom of the Lord, and then in that colossal moment, he had the wisdom of the Lord. I'll tell you one thing that really touched me about this story is that when those wicked people brought that wicked gift to King David, he had no time to go off on a week-long retreat with God and think about what he should do. He had to make an instantaneous decision because the fate of an entire nation was in his hands. In a moment of time, it was in his hands. And by the fellowship of God in his life, he saw what he should see, he said what he should say, and he did what he should do. And that was the fruit of a daily way of life. I pray to God that we will hear and heed this message today. I pray to God that we will hear and heed this message today. As is our daily life before the Lord, so will be our thoughts, feelings, and actions when the colossal moments of life come our way. And they will come our way. Maybe not like this. Very few of us will ever be caught up in the kind of political intrigue and all the the massive kingdom of God stuff that King David was. But still, we have our moments that in the context of our lives, our very serious moments, our colossal moments, will we be ready? Will we be ready? You can actually answer that question today, yes or no. And the way you can answer is to look at your daily life. Is your daily life sowing the seeds of things that will make you ready for the colossal moments when they come. I hope so. I remember my very first day when I went to, to, to a regular four-year college, so I'd already done about a year of college or so, but I went to um, four-year college. I think I started full-time in the fall of 92, and President Russell Tuck stood up and he addressed us. It was such a powerful address. I still remember the sense of earnestness upon his face. I still remember many of the things that he said, and I remember one line he said, word for word. And watch now that I said that in front of you. I won't be able to quote it word for word. But it's something that's guided me for so long. He said, do not delude yourself into thinking that you will be what you are not becoming. Do not delude yourself into thinking that someday you will be something that you are not becoming day by day by day by day. The reason the people in the north did not seek God in the colossal moment of life is because they were not seeking God in the daily moments of life. And the reason David knew what to do in the heat of a moment is because moment by moment, he had been seeking God. I really pray that we'll listen. In the larger scope of things, this story is the story of a God who has made a covenant with his people. And as part of that covenant, he has made particular promises to David, and he is simply and utterly committed to fulfilling everything that he has purposed and completing everything that he has promised. This is the story of a God who is going to rise David up as the king of Israel because he has said so, and nothing in this earth would stop him. And so one of the major lessons that I see in this text is not a new lesson to us, but again, you know, we're like sheep. We need to hear the same things over and over and over and over. We need to be reminded. Sometime, look up in your Bible how many times the commandment to remember comes up. The reason the Bible's constantly telling us to remember is because we're so good at forgetting. Isn't that true? So remember this. The living God will fulfill all of his purposes and keep all of his promises in his own time and in his own way. 
But the Lord is very great and he's greatly to be praised and nothing, nothing can stand in the way of him accomplishing what he sets out to accomplish. He will in fact use everything to accomplish those things, even evil things like the actions of Saul and Ishbosheth and Joab and Abner and Ba'ana and Rehab and so many others, even one many years later named Judas. The living God will fulfill all of his purposes and keep all of his promises in his own time and in his own way. And beloved, because he does things in his own time and in his own way, his people, people like David, need three things. I forgot last night, I ended up working really late last night and I forgot to put the PowerPoint together so I apologize for that, but if you're a note taker, there are three things I wanna highlight right now. In order to get, really grasp that in his own time and in his own way thing, we need faith, we need patience, and we need humility. We need, in the depths of our soul, we need faith, we need patience, and we need humility. More than we need the air we breathe and the food that we eat and the water that we drink. I really mean that. As for David, he needed faith. And here's what I mean. I don't mean that he needed some sort of generalized trust that God was good and that God was gonna do what he said he's gonna do. What faith is, is trusting in the faithfulness of God. And the way that we trust in the faithfulness of God is by clinging to the words that God has spoken. That's how faith works. I saw a report on a news channel this week where they were talking about, about faith and I just wish that I could call in and correct them because the general cultural idea of what faith is is so wrong. Faith is clinging to God's faithfulness by trusting in his words, beloved. David knew God's words and, and he had to trust. You remember when he was about 15 or so, he's anointed as king in a private ceremony. He goes out into this public place and he defeats the great giant Goliath. And before he knows it, as just a young kid, he's at the right hand of King Saul, serving in the royal courts. He can't believe it. He must be thinking to himself, wow, God is gonna quickly fulfill his promises. I am gonna rise and I am gonna rise fast. I believe David was humble as a young man, but I believe he thought all of God's promises were gonna come about quickly, but they did not. David ended up spending his entire 20s running for his life from the king he had been so close to. And then he spent three quarters of his 30s sitting in Hebron, ruling over a small part of the kingdom, wondering if the Lord had forgotten what he had said or if he would ever fulfill the things that he had promised. Beloved David, in those 20 years, which believe me, were long, long years for David. Remember, they're so long. Do you remember, there's about an 18 month period where David basically just withdrew from the Lord, was so numb, he just stopped seeking the Lord. That is pain, beloved. The reason David did that is because of the pain of waiting upon God. He was struggling to believe, but he needed faith. He needed to know the words of God. He needed to cling to the words of God. He needed to trust in the words of God. He needed to believe that God would do every single thing he had promised to do and that not one word would fail. He needed faith and so do we, beloved. So do we. We all have our individual seasons of waiting, but in a big, big way, we're waiting for the day when King Jesus is declared the king of all the universes and, and is set up upon that throne. We are waiting for the day 
when King Jesus arises and all the chaos of this earth is vanquished in a moment and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. We are waiting for the day when all suffering and all death is vanquished and where those who have believed in Christ will rise to be with him forever. And between now and then, sometimes it seems so long and so impossible, doesn't it? Don't you ever look at this world and just say, it's not going to happen. But the Lord is faithful, beloved, and we need to have faith. Everything that David could see was saying, not, it's not going to happen. But God had said, it's going to happen, and so it was going to happen. David had to have faith. The Lord will fulfill everything in his own time and in his own way. And he's not on our time schedule, right? We must believe in his particular words. So read your Bibles, read your Bibles, not just to fulfill a Christian duty, but to have words to cling to, to have words to trust in, to have words to hope in, to have a heart from your Father that you can know. The other thing that's very much related to this that David needed and that we needed, that we do need, is simply just patience. We need to learn patience. And you know the old thing, right? Don't ask God for patience because what? He'll give you reasons to have to have patience, right? But we need that. You can't learn patience by reading about it in a book, not even in the Bible. You can learn about the nature of patience in the Bible, but you have to learn patience in real life, in circumstances that just seem so unlikely, and things that are so difficult. There's no way to learn patience but to be in situations where you are forced to be patient, and David had to have that, beloved, indeed. The Lord wanted his man to rise to the throne, but please hear me. He wanted his man to be ready to rise to that position. Years and years ago, Henry Blackaby put out a great book called Experiencing God. I suggest it to all of you. It was more like a workbook. Had a huge impact on my life in the early 2000s. One of the things that Henry Blackaby says in that book is that God will always make sure to shape the character in order to fit the calling. And that character shaping takes a lot of time. And so God was shaping David to match the calling. Have you ever noticed that the best and most expensive restaurants in town always obviously cost the most money, but it always takes the most time to get your food? You know, when you pay just a little bit of money for not very good food, it comes like in an instant. But the more you pay, the longer and longer and longer you have to wait. Have you ever noticed that? Why is that? Because the chefs know what they're doing. And the better the chef, the more they know how to bring the best and greatest flavors out of food. And they know that that takes time. I grew up in the restaurant business. My parents were 50% owners of nine steakhouse restaurants. There was not a microwave in any of our restaurants. A microwave is not a tool of gourmet cooking. Why? Because you cannot quickly produce great things. The Lord's wiser than chef's. And he knows that to produce the right character, it takes time. And to produce the greatest character, it takes a lot of time. David had so much need, beloved, to be shaped into the image of his father. And so it took a lot of time. He had to wait. He had to be patient. And part of what I mean by being patient is he had to trust that God was working in him and knew what he was doing, right? Do you trust that God knows what he's doing in your life? I think a lot of times I do. Sometimes... If I'm being honest, I don't. But I'm asking God for help now. Help me to trust. You know, he gives us stories of people like David to help us see that he's not wasting time along the way. He's developing things. 
that are extremely important, right? Even Jesus, in his role as high priest, had to be perfected through a process of suffering. Even Jesus had to wait upon his father and trust in his father. The father knew what he was doing in David's life. He knew what he was doing in Jesus' life. And the father knows what he's doing in our lives as well. And I'll tell you, I think that one of the greatest designs of the Lord and desires of the Lord in our seasons of waiting is to teach us how to take joy in the Lord himself rather than in the end goal that we so desire. So I don't know what your end game of life is. I don't know what the big thing is for you. For David, it was to rise to to be the king of Israel. I don't know, maybe you have some dream in your life, some big thing. I promise you that if you put all your hope in that desire, when you get there, you are gonna be so disappointed. The only thing that will fulfill the human heart is being satisfied in the Lord, and there's nothing else. This week, of all people, I heard Jim Carrey give a speech, just a little thing, three or four minutes, and it, it was stunning to me. He talked about how he wishes that every person could be brought to the pinnacle of fame and fortune and to be given everything that this world has to afford just for like one month so that everybody could see what every pa- famous person already sees, that the things of this world cannot fill up the hollowness inside of our souls. I had never heard Jim Carrey be serious about anything. I was surprised by his intelligence and his insight into the human predicament. He was talking to a room full of very famous people and every one of them, he had them right in the palm of his hand because they knew that what he was saying is true. Everything this world affords will not fill up the hollowness inside the soul. And even for believers, if we're putting our hope in the fulfillment of some dream rather than in the Lord himself, we will be sorely disappointed. God uses our seasons of waiting to teach us how to take joy in God himself. Do you see? And if you'll learn to take joy in God now, you'll have joy in God then. If you'll learn to take joy in God now, you'll have joy in God forever and ever. Beloved, we have to trust our Father. David waited for 22 years, but I want to tell you something. The Lord didn't waste a single one of those days. I know it's a little warm in here. Service is a little long. You're probably getting a little tired. Please hear me. The Lord did not waste one day of 22 years of time that passed by in David's life. Not a day. And he's not wasting a day in our lives either. Not a single day. He's trying to develop our character to match our calling. He's trying to teach us to be content in the Lord, just to enjoy the Lord. Oh, what an amazing gift that is. The Lord will fulfill all of his purposes and all of his promises. It calls for faith, it calls for patience, and the last thing I see in this story is it calls for humility. And what I mean here, specifically with David, is that when everything was done, he had to learn to leave vengeance to the Lord and to deny his fleshly impulse for revenge. Oh, how differently he could have acted when all these people started dying. David, instead of seeking to gather people and go execute God's justice upon his enemies, just trusted the Lord and learned to love their enemies. But I wanna suggest to you that it took a lot of time for him to get there. If you think that I'm wrong about that, just remember with me David's reaction when Nabal offended him in a relatively minor way. Nabal did not try to take his head off. Nabal just did something that ticked David off and he told all of his men, strap up, we're gonna go take his life. Thank God, Abigail, the woman of God, stood in his way and said, no king, you really really shouldn't do this. You know why? 
because you've been anointed and God is your avenger. He will take care of you. You don't need to do this. Do you understand? David learned to love his enemies. It wasn't natural to him. David learned to give vengeance to the Lord. It wasn't natural to him. And what I'm trying to say is that that took a lot of time, beloved. Time had to pass. You can't love your enemies if you don't have any enemies. And it took a lot of time for David to get legitimate, ferocious enemies that he could love. It took a lot of time for vengeance to be built up that David could have executed himself, and maybe, maybe rightly so. But then he had to learn to give that vengeance to the Lord and say, my father, I trust you. I trust you. Believe me, David learned that not from a book or from talking to his mentors. He learned that from the dark chasms of suffering over and over and over again. And now in this time when his great enemies are falling one by one by one, what's he doing? He's leaving vengeance to the Lord. He's granting honor to those whom it is due. And he's leading everybody under his control also to grant honor to those people. All I'm trying to say, beloved, is that kind of character does not happen in a moment. That cannot be microwaved. That has to happen over a long period of time. David had to learn to trust God in the process and not just the outcome. And I pray that we will too. I pray that we will too. I don't know what's happening in your life right now. I don't know how you're envisioning things in our culture and just the, the kingdom of God around the world, the vast sweep of the story of God and Jesus Christ. I don't know how all these things are striking you right now, but I want to encourage you that God will fulfill every single word that he has promised. Not one will fall to the ground. But in order for us to trust him, in order for us to have joy in him and to be with him all the way to the end, we need to let him develop in us faith, patience, and humility. And it's going to take time. It's just going to take time. So let's pray now that God will help us. Father, I feel uh, just such an earnestness in my soul. I just feel the, the sense of appropriate weightiness. The things that we've talked about today are serious things and they're life-giving things, they're important things. And the decisions we make on a Sunday like this are so crucial, Father. We can either choose to look to you and humble ourselves before you and let you do your work in us, or we can push against you and frankly make our difficult situations even more difficult. And so I pray that by your amazing grace that you would overwhelm our fleshly resistance and I pray that you would help us to see your graciousness in the way that you worked in David's life and in the way you worked in Israel's life and in the way you're working in our lives as well, Father. Please help us to surrender and submit, not only to your ultimate designs, but to your process. Oh, Father, please help us. It isn't all that hard to understand these things in the brain, Lord, but it's so hard when we walk out that door to truly surrender ourselves to you. Spirit of God, I trust now that by your power and by the goodness that's in your heart that you will use this spoken word to edify your people and to glorify your name. And so I give to you my thanks in Jesus' name, amen.